Welcome to Complete Curiosity, the podcast that addresses the big questions in little segments. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Complete Curiosity podcast. This week, I'm talking to Executive Vice President Nick Dalton from Unilever. And Nick is a good friend of mine. In fact, we've just recently co-authored a book on the past, present and future of HR called The HR Revolution, Change the Workplace, Change the World. And Nick and I will be chatting about the seven great waves of HR and how it started in the Industrial Revolution and has changed in many ways all the way through the 20th century. And we come up to today where most HR departments are in the profit wave. And we discuss the two waves yet to come, paradox and planet. So we're chatting through all of those what we call P waves, and we're going to explore what they mean for the HR profession. Afternoon. How are you doing today, Nick? Very good, Alan. Thanks. Great to be speaking to you today. Yeah, you too. And delighted that we can have a little chat about the publication of our book, The HR Revolution, Change the Workplace, Change the World, which we're launching in London uh, on the 27th of February. And I just wondered, of the eight books I've written to date, this is probably the the most pleasurable writing experience for me. But I, I wondered, since it's your first book, you know, how was it for you? Yeah, people ask me what was it like writing it, and I have to say it was a pleasure. Not only because I wrote it with you, Alan, of course. I think writing a book with someone else actually does make the task more pleasurable and, and in some ways easier. But also, having done HR for 35 years, you know, there was something cathartic about being able to get a lot of the experiences and a lot of the thinking down on paper. And so in many ways, I was writing the book at weekends and as we were having calls on Saturdays and I was writing it on long haul flights, but it just flowed. It really just flowed. So I really, really enjoyed it. Well, as I did too. It's been interesting because in in many ways, you've lived through all these different ways of HR. So I wonder whether it actually felt a little bit autobiographical as you did it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you know, we described the seven waves, the seven P waves of HR, starting with paternalism, which was first introduced when people first really came together in big factory or middle locations at the start of the first industrial revolution Mm. and although of course i wasn't around at the start of the first industrial revolution Mm -hmm. the first wave of paternalism is still prevalent in the world today and one of the joys of working for a big complex multinational like unilever is i've witnessed and worked in and seen all of those waves or at least five six of the waves during the course of my career yeah and and so i wonder is it just the developing world that these earlier versions of HR still exist today? Or do they still exist in a very modern company like Unilever? And if they do, is it just in the emerging markets that they exist? What would you say about that first paternalistic well, way? I think there's a bit which is structural and there's a bit which is about the individual leaders. The structural pieces, there's no question that business conditions and the type of business that you're operating in, the marketplaces you're dealing with, do determine the type of approach you take to people, whether it's paternalistic, whether it's a power approach, whether it's a process approach, et cetera. So I think to some degree, the types of market you're in, are those markets more concentrated? Are those markets ones where scale is important? Are those markets one where, et 
excellence of process is a key differentiator. Are those markets where speed of response becomes important? Mm. Influences your way. Yeah. But also the type of leader does. Because even in the most developed markets, I have come across the most paternalistic of leaders. Yeah. And therefore, we called them waves. And of course, we called them waves for that reason. And I wanted you to remember when we were talking about the cover of the book, I wanted to use Russian dolls at one point because yeah. everything's within everything, just like a wave is on a beach. Yeah. So I will see all of those waves, maybe even in one business, yeah. in, in one country, um, wherever it is in the world. So do you think, it's very interesting you say that, so if the market is relatively immature, then you possibly have a less sophisticated version of HR, or if the leader is showing up in a less sophisticated way. Do you think the market trumps the leader or the leader trumps the market? Or is it a bit of both? Or what would you say in terms of what determines the kind of HR practice? Wow, now you're into one of those deeper questions, aren't you? Structure versus individual. <laughs> Honestly, I don't, I don't really know. But I hadn't considered it. But now you'll make me think about it. I think it's a really, really good question. I've seen both, to be honest, if I go to hard data. I've seen occasions where the market does trump the leader just simply because of the environment around them. But the reality is when the market does trump the leader, you probably do end up changing the leader. Yeah. So let's pull out the rabbit hole for a moment. One of the the lovely things is I learned a lot writing this book with you. In the early days, if we just sort of go to the sort of paternalistic wave, you know, where it all started for HR. I mean, one of the big insights for me in those early days was almost the historical context that, you know, certainly in Britain, where the factory system largely started, before it got going, there was really no economy. I mean, it was village by village with their own craftsmen. And it was really the factory system that really spawned the emergence and the, particularly the paternalism. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, I, I was fascinating because I did have to research a bit of that. Because as I say, I, I really wasn't around when the putting out system was, uh, was prevalent before the Industrial Revolution. But it is actually fascinating that we had the putting out system where families would work or work would be put out and then it would be all brought together. And then that was the trades guilds and people were master craftspeople and the original apprentices existed. Uh, And in some ways, I suspect we're going back to that in a little way, but we'll come to that later. But really, when people had to come together in huge numbers, when Arkwright's mill was put in place and the big scale mills and early factories were established the people challenge here was amazing and the people challenge was about making sure people turned up for work they Mm. weren't drunk they Mm. were reasonably clean and they did what they were told Mm. and there were some brutal brutal working conditions we know you know the the oliver twist the stuff charles dickens captured but equally there were some marvelous examples of early paternalism with wilfred owen with lever with cadbury with the wedgwoods with all sorts of people that did the middles in the usa so there was really good examples of early HR, it wasn't mm. called HR, it wasn't even called personnel. That was really a welfare function or a safety mm. function. Mm. That was the Mrs. E.M. Wood, who we mentioned right at the start of the book, yeah. who we all started with. It all started with Mrs. E.M. Wood. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. So as we went through each wave, clearly there's an upside and a downside to every wave. You know, as you said, there's some brilliant examples of Cadbury and the like, who looked really looked after in that paternalistic way, their people, but also you know Oliver Twist. There was a lot of brutality, and what was interesting, each wave has its upside and its downside, but it's always the dark side 
that forces the next evolution, right? So that was also a very fascinating dynamic is to whoever is working whatever business who may be listening to this, wondering about, well, which wave am I in and what's next? It's the dark side that will provoke the next emergence. So sometimes when people are in a difficult spot, it sort of reset how we see the dark side for me, which is this may feel really uncomfortable, but maybe this is the storm before the sunshine emerges. You know, we're in this dark place, but actually maybe we're in a pivot point, an evolutionary pivot point. So rather than rail against it, if we can accelerate it, we might come through the other side. I mean, having lived through some of these waves, were you aware of those types of dynamics as you were sort of in the thick of HR over the years? The short answer is no. Uh, obviously, I am now having written a book with yourself and having thought about these issues. But actually, no, for most of my career, I wasn't aware. I was like most HR people, actually. I was just reacting to what was around me. Yeah. It was only really in the last few years where you've been able to reflect upon the past, present and think about the future. It's only really in recent times that I've sort of thought about purpose-driven HR and what the yeah. HR functions here to do for the world. Yeah, that these ideas come to fruition. But no, I think when you're in the, the thick of it, you actually do respond. You're a child of the worldview that you're sitting in and you don't even know you're in that worldview. And I think that's actually true for 80% of us HR participants. Yeah, it, it's like sitting old, in a worldview, we don't even know we're in it. Exactly. It's like that old joke of two fish in a fish tank and another fish swims past and says, what do you think of the water boys? And the other fish goes, water, what water? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, we're in it. We don't realise we're in it. Um, and that's the purpose of the book in many ways. I think the purpose of the book is to make us take that historical and the future view and think about the journey. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right, which is what excited me, because to really drive change at the speed and the rate that we need to in the world, we first have to become conscious of where we are and what's going on and why it's going on. And so if we're just fish in a fish tank and we don't even know we're in water then it doesn't occur to us to do anything different than what we're doing right now. So I think we'll come back to that theme. But if we could just go to the sort of paternalism, you know, uh, Cadbury and, and Unilever Brothers looking after the staff, but also the Oliver Twist dimension. So what really do you think sort of drove us to go from that paternalistic wave, which was largely pre-1920, into the power wave? Yeah, so I think, as far as I can see, I think... Really, when the Industrial Revolution began, the first business cycle started to click in towards the end of the 19th century. And even those who were the biggest advocates of positive paternalism found that they couldn't afford it anymore. Hmm. So in many cases, I think the capitalistic, I can call it that business cycle, drove paternalists to try and cut corners. They would often use immigrant labour to keep costs down. During that period of time, the Irish famine provided a lot to the UK and to the USA. And that led inevitably to a, a backlash, which was the rise of, of the trade union movement and employee organisation. I have to say, Alan, people ask me, which was my favourite chapter to write when I wrote the pieces around HR history in right. those chapters. Chapter two was my favourite, I have to say, which uh, on power, because it's dramatic. You know, the drama of that era with the rise of the trade unions, literally 
people shooting at each other, the whole drama around, and heroism, actually, in terms yes. of some of the leadership that we saw in that time. It, it's dramatic. It, it's yes. The upside of power, as well as the downside of power, you very much see in that chapter in our book, chapter two, on power. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, you know, like film and TV loves a bit of jeopardy. It's always fascinating, this is a little aside, that when, uh, it's always amused me that when you look at science fiction books uh, or science fiction films, Star Wars and stuff like that, is it still largely in that power wave? And you think, well, we've evolved the ability to fly to the far end of the universe, but we still can't overcome the power dynamics. <laughs> I mean, like, how much have we really evolved? So yeah. Humanity hasn't evolved, but it's got this incredible technology. And I think that's almost an allegory for sort of modern business. And, and the challenge of yeah. modern business is we've got to understand the kind of dynamics we wrote about in the book to really accelerate properly. It's not enough just to accelerate the technology. So if the sort of power wave started to kick in, particularly, you know, starting at the you know, 1900s, but particularly dominant through the sort of 20s and 30s up until the Second World War, and you say with industrial strife and those dramatic power battles between the robber barons and the workforce and the organization of the workforce and the trade unions against the owners. What, what took us beyond that? What broke us through you know, to wave three, the process wave? Yeah, so I mean, again, all of these are really controversial questions. And I can imagine if a historian is listening to this, they could be going mad. Because you know, sort of, I'm going to make this sweeping statement now that can't be true, but nevertheless is probably somewhere around the, the area. And the, the war, the Second World War. Now, some people might say it was Franklin um, Roosevelt's New Deal. Yeah. That's more of an optimistic view that actually society itself, American society, began to look for a new way. John Maynard Keynes, of course, started to publish it in the 1930s. But they were largely, I mean, Keynes was largely ignored before the war. And I think you wrote the phrase in the book, actually, Alan, where you said after the Second World War, people had had enough power leaders. Mm. And I think probably that's a, a brutal simplification, but an absolute truth. Mm. And I think that led us into the process way where we, we started to want to obey rules and work through procedure and process. Mm. And, and it's interesting, actually, because most HR people don't realize it. But then when you explain it, we all nod. We were called welfare officers in the paternalism era. Then we were called industrial relations officers in the power era. And in the process era, we became called personnel officers. Yeah. It's, it's all in the name. It's all yeah. in the name. So I think it was the war. I think it was the downside of power, which was rather cataclysmic during that era. Well, indeed. And that, I don't know whether I'm going to quote this war as the locomotive of history. I mean, you probably know better than I, being a student of these things. I don't know whether that's Trotsky or somebody. But it did change things and it made a difference. You know, I think there's a very compelling case for people had had enough and they'd seen the horrors of rampant power damage that causes in the world. And they thought, oh my goodness, we've got to put some rules in place to stop these egomaniacs and these autocrats getting too much control. And certainly, again, one of the interesting things was HR reflecting society at the time. You know, so as we became personnel officers, we got into the process wave because people wanted rules as a counterbalance to the, the power despots. With that, a lot of rules got put in place, but there's still a lot of HR process that is deeply rooted in that today, right? For sure, but it is the Russian goals in each of these ways, paternalism, power and process, some good stuff you've got to retain. Yeah. Because let's remember, when we went into the process era, it wasn't only about HR or personnel. That was the era of the professional manager. 
yes. up until that era, we didn't have it. It was the era of the management consultant. It was the era yes. of Peter Drucker. It was the era of the job evaluation systems. It was the era of organizational development. Yes. Um, it was the era where people started to study management, think about management. Yeah. So, you know, we went from sort of entrepreneurs, if you like, or freewheelers to becoming professional managers. Yeah. And that was a good thing. And as in the concept of the wave or the Russian doll, the positive side of that wave, we need to treasure and we need to retain as we absorb other waves. Indeed. And so the sense of things becoming more professional from the power wave, a bit gung ho, seat of the pants type of approach, that discipline, you know, that order, that stability, mm-hmm. and things sort of calm down a bit. I mean, post World War II, we have the UN, we have the EU, well, not the EU, we have yeah. the UN, we have the WHO. UNESCO. Well, the EU started then, didn't it? Yeah. The Treaty of Rome started in the 50s. Yes, yeah. Uh, and what's interesting, Alan, I think we say it in the book, uh, countries like Germany and Japan, and to some degree the Benelux countries, uh, who really did adopt the process wave and still live it to some degree today, and make a huge success out of it. Make yeah. a huge success out of it. I mean, I think it's ironic, looking at a sort of geopolitical globally, that the losers of World War II, you know, larger the Germans, the Japanese, really did make a thing of that process phase, you know, and it became lean and efficiency of manufacturing. And still today, part of their competitive advantage. So turning their, you know, they had to because they couldn't compete otherwise. So I think, you know, these ties, these ebbs and flows of what's happening on a global and societal level have hugely influenced HR practice. And then the wheels start to come off process and we go to wave four, the profit wave. So Say a bit about that. What's mm. driving that transition from process to profit? Well, I remember this era now because this is about when I started. And this was the era when, let's face it, we were seeing the downside of the process wave because things were becoming bureaucratic and slow. Yes. We felt we weren't able to innovate. We felt we weren't able. Everything was too collective. Mm. The individual was getting swamped in the workplace I, I was at a factory once where we wanted to actually turn a machine off because we didn't need the product and we were told by the trade union i'm sorry you can't turn the machine off so we had to run the line all night because you know that was the agreement yeah so this was really the thatcher reagan era yeah it didn't actually sweep this profit era it didn't sweep as big in other parts of the world as it did in the anglo-saxon world right but for, for hr of course this is when we started to call ourselves hr managers yeah so when, a- when i first Changed my name from personnel to HR. I just thought I was, you know, adopting a trendier job title. What I didn't realise was I was adopting a completely new worldview, and I was. Yeah. Because at that time we started to do individual appraisal, we started to do variable pay, we started to give stock options, we started to say that we're not going to, we're going to talk to our employees directly and not going to go around trade unions. Many of us actually were taken away on retreats to become transformational leaders because we were no longer managers. But all of that was part of this new profit era of HRM, the Ulrich model, which we yeah. all adopted with enthusiasm. Yeah. And it's been the last 30 years. It's been most of my HR career. Yeah. And metrics are a big thing, right? Yeah. I mean, what really started off, actually, in terms of a little bit the, the positives of the process side, because it started off with us benchmarking HR processes. Yeah. And, and the, towards the end of the profit era, it became around analytics. And as we go into the people and purpose here, of course, that's metamorphizing now into how we use it in terms of crowdsourcing and employee experience. So you can see that it started in the process era. That was benchmarking, became analytics in the profit era. 
and is now around employee experience as we go into the people era. All yes. of these different ways of using data. No, indeed. And, and so before we get to the people area and the people wave, would your observation be that, you know, as you go around the world as, as much as you do and encounter lots of different businesses, that most organizations, most modern organizations are really in wave four, the profit wave or below? Is that still oh, the for sure? Yeah. yeah. So, look, I think I see a lot in the profit wave. I see a lot of leaders in the profit wave. I see a lot in the power wave and I see a lot in the process wave. And what I often see is leaders who are, quote, transformational leaders with a profit wave mindset trying to convince power trade union to go along with them. Yeah. Which really, really, really works. Yeah. And a lot of people claiming that transformation word, but basically just stuck in the wave that they're stuck in, right? So they claim transformation, but actually it's just tactical adjustments. And my observation in, in the work that we do helping organizations globally is in that profit wave, one of the things that happens on the dark side is the manipulation of language, right? Yes. Using these words to suggest that something transformational is happening when the yes. truth is it's just tactical maneuvering. Well, I, I have a shorthand for it when I present on this, Alan, particularly in Unilever, I have to be careful, I get myself in trouble. But I, I say if you're a paternalistic leader, the way you manage change is to say, go along with the change and I'll look after you. Mm -hmm. If you're a power leader, the way you manage change is just do it because I've got more power than you have. If you're a process leader, you say, let's follow the process. And mm -hmm. you know, we'll, we'll go through the steps of following a process. And if you're a profit leader, you say, I'm, I'm going to convince you it's a good idea for you to lose your job. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that's the way we manage change. It's one of those variants or a mixture of those variants. Mm -hmm. And we were all trained, actually, in, in the profit era to use things like the change acceleration process, a great GE invention. Mm. which is basically the best of each of those eras encapsulated in a process for change. You see it an awful lot that we, we are the children of all of those eras. And a few companies, I think the one I work for is, is beyond. I think others are too. It's not mm. only uh, the one I work for, of course. But I think most companies are in those uh, uh, paternalism, power, process, profit eras. Yeah, so it's said globally only 20% of the global population have reached the sort of people wave. And in corporations, what would your estimate be? Do you think it's as much as 20%? I think 20% will espouse it now. Yeah. So all of a sudden it's in fashion. Yeah. The phrase we use in our book is all of a sudden Jack Welch went out of fashion. Yes. I mean, you will remember and I will remember just how fashionable he was 10 years, yes. 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was the man. And now, of course, no one no one references him at all yeah. um, now we're talking about ben and jerry's and the other people that we exampled in our book yeah. on the people and purpose chapter but actually there's a huge say do gap isn't there which between what people espouse and what really happens in practice and i don't know alan you, you'll have a rough idea for how many leaders are probably in that people and purpose place in business and that's probably the best reflection of how many companies are really there as yeah. opposed to how many say they, they have a purpose. Well, I think it's certainly true that the intellectual comprehension massively precedes the ability to manifest it or embody it in your own organisation. So I think we're still in a bit of a early greenwashing, people claiming, you know, they're in the people wave and, you know, have a desire to be there, but really doing it and operating that way, it's much less than people claim. So but interestingly, you were saying earlier on that the labels change. So the HRD or even the CHRO becomes the CPO, right? Not yeah, people, CPO. people and organisation, chief people officer. That's what we are now. We haven't changed our name in HR in Unilever. I've been, I've been thinking we should. 
But the amount of people I meet now who are people officers is more than I meet who are HR officers. Yeah. And so what's really been the sort of demise of the profit wave and into the people wave? Is it a desire for a more purposeful life? What would you say? What's been the driver? Well, again, to your point earlier about societal trends and political trends, you know, the crisis of 2008, Mm. that, that was the structural piece that fundamentally undermined the model. Mm. And then I also think the challenges, Alan, the actual challenges leaders face today also, you know, the trade-offs no longer work. Mm. I've done lots of business courses uh, and I understand all the models, but the models are no longer relevant to the complexity we face in today's world, where it's actually about transcending polarities, Mm. to use the language, rather than managing trade-offs. And so the transcending of the polarities makes leaders realize that the solutions we all learned in the profit era no longer work in the era we live today, mm. which means that we do go deeper, which means that we do try and bring out the jewels, the insights into what made organizations great when founders set them up, which is always around purpose. They mm. always had a purpose that was deeper than just making money and shareholder value. And I think we've rediscovered that now. Leaders, Many leaders have rediscovered that, and now they're working through what that means and it means we go back to more collective approaches many many companies are now getting rid of rating people at the end of the year yeah many many companies are now looking at collective and team assessments rather than individual assessment Mm. so we're swinging back from the individual to the collective yeah we're seeing changes in how people are rewarded we're seeing changes in how people are consulted we're seeing a whole well-being wave come in there people worrying about the impact of society and we're seeing of course and it was very big at Davos this year, as we know, a whole sustainability piece, both for business as well as for purposeful reasons, is, is, is something that can no longer be ignored. And I think that whole rather almost trite phrase now, people are our most important asset, which of course has always been true, but in the people way, people actually mean it for real now, as opposed to just some you know, trotted out phrase, you know, that human resources, HR, is basically just an asset. You're a pawn on the board. But now I think there's a much deeper appreciation for the subtlety and complexity of the people piece and how critical and how central it is, particularly as information is shared around the world, the difference is in the people. And I think that's understood at a much deeper level in the people way. For sure, but then that brings us on to the paradox wave, which some organisations are beginning to put their fingers and toes into the water of. I mean, we say the paradox wave will start around 2020 in the book. That's our mm. estimate. I think it is. Mm. Uh, where you see the say-do gap between yeah. those lovely statements that you've just espoused and actually what really happens in the real world. Yeah. Because in the real world, it's messy, it's complex. I talk about transcending polarities. That sounds great, doesn't it? But I'm not sure how to do that. Yeah. And that means you've got to sort of live with the paradoxes of businesses that talk about being purposeful, yet at the same time are reorganizing themselves like Billy Hope. Yeah. And the HR function in the paradox wave has got to learn a whole new set of tricks Yeah, in terms of managing change again in a very different way. Actually accepting and acknowledging paradoxes and not running away from them, seeking to risk manage them yeah. and seeking to change itself. Yeah. Because I think in the paradox wave, we don't have an HR function, anything like the one we've had for the last hundred years. I think it's completely different again. So I think that people and purpose wave inevitably leads very quickly, actually, to a paradox wave. And it starts this year, as we said in the book, 
But does does the CPO become? I mean, I've heard the phrase chief of staff or CAO even. What does it become? What is it then? Well, what I'm seeing it beginning to emerge is that 80% of what I spent my career doing, which has been a lot of casework, a lot of it actually personnel work, classic personnel work, mm -hmm. uh, it becomes cross-functional. Yeah. It starts to merge with other employee experience things like workplace or other things. Becomes run by cross-functional organisations. Lots of companies went through the horror of outsourcing HR during the profit era. They re-insourced it because it wasn't working. But they're now reimagining it in terms of AI and machine learning and the use you can make of bots and other other things to do cross-functional end-to-end approaches. Done well, done in a networked way, which we describe in our book with a different mindset. That absorbs absorbs eighty percent of what I've done. Mm. So what? HR, if I can put the quotes up, the air quotes up, then becomes, is really and truly about people development, team development, organizational development. It really and truly becomes like the example we use in the book is a, sadly a soccer example, maybe not very inclusive. But when I went to soccer in the 70s and a player got injured, a fat bloke with a cigarette would run on with a sponge. Yeah. Nowadays, footballers, they have a nutritionist, they have throwing coaches, they have people who help them with their psychology, they have all sorts of experts around them, and that's what HR people will need to become in the paradox way, because top-level leaders able to transcend the paradox will require that level of elite performance support. And all the old stuff, yeah. which, by the way, I've enjoyed doing, yeah. will end up in some form of organisation that provides a chief of staff type service to probably one or many companies. Yeah, so just in the last minute or so, as we wrap up, you know, maybe we become chief development officers, CDOs, because there's a, a group mm. of states, as you know, deliberately developmental organizations, DDOs, as people mm. realize actually the game changer is maturity and sophistication. It is that development piece. So finally, organizations stop being so obsessed with the L of L&D and get into the D of L&D. And so we talked about in the book about the paradox wave, you know, probably going from 2020 to 2040, and ultimately we get to the planet wave. So do you want us to just give us a headline on you know, what's yet to come? Yeah, first of all, the, the sort of health warning. I'm probably personally myself not developed enough to be able to really understand the planet wave, other than to be aware it's there and sort of have an idea of what it might feel like. What I'm pretty sure about the planet wave is that if we get there, if we don't destroy the planet before we get there, the economic models that we spent the last 150 years developing will have to change radically with the planet and human beings being at the center of what we do, not being something that we extract and use as resources. The way I would put it in my simplistic terms is John Maynard Keynes wrote the economic poss possibilities for our grandchildren 100 years ago, he wrote mm. it, I think in 1920s where he talked about us solving the economic problem. Mm. We can do that through AI and machine learning because there's abundance there if that mm. works. And to create the conditions whereby the human goal is how we flourish, mm. how we realize our purpose. Yeah. Now, of course, this is incredibly idealistic and how we get from here to there, you can have all sorts of ideas, but it's a hell of a journey. But for me, that should be the essence of what HR's purpose is because yeah. that's a lovely, lovely ambition to free mankind from the tyranny of soulless work yeah. and help people flourish and realize their purpose. That goes back to that whole developmental mission and that's what we should be about as a function.
And so is that the dream for the book? Like if you had to leave us with a dream, like what do you hope the book's going to really achieve? I think that's the call to arms we put down, Alan, isn't it? If that's yeah. not an old fashioned phrase, but if the HR function isn't the function that starts to campaign for this, who else would? Yeah. And if not now, then when? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Indeed. So great <laughs> talking to you, Nick. R really enjoyed it as always. We could, of course, talk for hours. We could go on all day. Yeah. Yeah. Probably nobody. People have stopped listening. So uh, really good to talk to you and, you know, let's hope that people pick up the book because it's packed full of interesting and entertaining stories and advice and guidance and helping people know where they are in their own HR function or in their business. And it's not just, you know, HR, it's anybody that cares about people and organisations of, you know, where are we, where are we going, right? It's, it's politics, it's history, it's HR, it's about, as, you, as we put it in the book, it's about human beings and what they care about, what they do. So I think it's got something in it for everyone. If we've piqued your curiosity or you've enjoyed anything we've talked about in this podcast, please subscribe, email us or just visit our website at complete-coherence.com.